good to be here this morning. We praise the Lord for this Resurrection Sunday that we can be together. My name is PJ Ryan. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Calvary Bible Church. Today I'm reading out of uh, the book of Isaiah. I'll be re- reading Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Um, reading from the NASB 1995. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet... He was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death, putting him to grief, excuse me, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. Let's just pray real quick, and then we'll get started in our text this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can just gather together on a Sunday morning, but particularly this one, to remember that you have risen from the dead, that the tomb is empty, and that our Savior lives. And Lord, uh, we give thanks, and we praise you for that. Lord, that is why we are here this morning, not really about ourselves, but to give you glory. And Lord, I pray for this morning that your Spirit would work in our, in our lives that you would open our eyes to see the truth. Lord, for those that do not know where they are with you, if if someone is here this morning that does not have a relationship with you, I pray you would call them to yourself and that they would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And I thank you for this church and thank you for the beautiful weather that we have today. And uh, bless the rest of our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be here with you all. If you are unfamiliar with who I am, I'm Byron Bradshaw, the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. If you have any questions after the service, feel free to see me. I'm usually up front these days, and I'd be glad to answer uh, most questions you have. I can't guarantee I I know all of them, uh, but I will try. But I know as some of you are thinking this morning, today we're in Isaiah chapter 53, and if you've been in church circles for a while, then you probably think like I'm thinking, what in the world does Isaiah 53 have to do with the resurrection? And when we think about this passage, Isaiah 53, we think about it just as a passion narrative that just describes the death of Jesus Christ, but it actually does more than that. 
It has the death of Christ, it has the resurrection of Christ, but it also has the victory of Christ after he rises from the dead. We see all of this just packed in this one passage this morning. What I find uh, incredible about this passage is that Isaiah 53 was penned 500 years before Jesus ever walked on earth, before he arrived in a little town called Bethlehem, and it predicts his death, his resurrection, and his victory over sin in perfection. Again, do we need not more information that this is the word of the living God? Uh, many of us know the story of the resurrection. I imagine that's why most of us are here this morning, because of Easter. Virtually every preacher today is talking about the resurrection in one shape or another. But do we know what the resurrection proves? We, we talk about what proves the resurrection, but what does the resurrection prove? I mean, universally, Christians agree to the importance of the resurrection. The Puritan writer John Gill said this, The resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith, and without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, The resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Every Christian all around the world recognizes whether they are Christian or not, whether they actually are saved or not. All Christians, whatever that means, okay, see the importance of Easter and even our culture earmarks this day as semi-important. I mean, your phone, for crying out loud, has it as an event on this day. But why is it important? What does the resurrection prove to us here today? Let's begin with a question. Let's just warm up a little bit this morning. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Jay Leno? Am I... Okay, all right, he has a big chin, white hair, and he wears the same thing every day, that uh, denim. Am I know what I'm talking about? Uh, but Jay Leno, if you know him, he was the host of The Tonight Show for a long time, but more recent days, he's the host of something called Jay Leno's Garage. How many of you have ever seen the show Jay Leno's Garage? Am I know what I'm talking about? Okay, so Jay Leno's Garage, Jay uh, films a variety, of tours a variety of his classic cars, Anywhere from his 1906 uh, Stanley Steam Car, his McLaren F1, which was my dream car as a child. This still is my dream car. Too bad I don't have $20 million. Um, it, you see his 1909 Baker Electric. We think that Elon Musk invented electric cars, but they were over 100 years old. But my favorite part of the show is when he takes his cars and he pops open the hood and he looks under the hood at a variety of these classic cars. Um, now, before you think I'm mechanically inclined, I'm not an engineer. I'm the son of an engineer. And when I look underneath the hood, I'm kind of lost. Anybody else in the room and relate to this one? Okay. But I find it interesting, all the different pieces that go into it. I don't understand what all of those parts do, but I know that every part is absolutely critical to the function of the car itself. Today, we look under the hood, so to speak, at the resurrection. In a sense, the resurrection is the engine of Christianity. It is what drives it. Without the resurrection, if Jesus is still in the grave, if there is not an empty tomb, then let's just go home. We are to be pitied, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
The resurrection is the engine that drives our faith. Without the resurrection, our faith is going nowhere. You know, I suppose every preacher around the world today is talking about the resurrection. And I suppose most preachers on Easter Sunday morning, you have a lot of first-time guests. And by the way, if you're a first-timer or new, welcome to Calvary Bible Church. I didn't say that this morning. Uh, But I suppose on Easter Sunday morning, most preachers are driven or drawn to answer the skeptics of what proves the resurrection. And we've done that. You know, I I don't really want to talk about what proves the resurrection. That has been tackled in its entirety for centuries. You know, it's hard to argue with an empty tomb. It's hard to argue with the 500 disciples and 500 eyewitnesses. It's hard to argue with the fact that each disciple, each died for the resurrection and for the message of the gospel. And there are many different parts of the resurrection that we can examine. And we can examine this morning the narrative of the resurrection, the veracity of the resurrection, how it was predicted in the Old Testament. We can talk about the resurrection of ourselves to come. And there are a host of parts. And all of them are important to the engine of Christianity. But today I want to look at just... Because I want to get you out on time this morning. I know we all have lunch plans. Amen. Anybody ever paranoid about going to Easter service and getting out late? Anybody else remember that? Okay. Before I was a preacher, I was nervous about that. Okay. But today, I want to just look at just one part of the resurrection. We could talk about a lot of different things. But today, I just want to answer one simple question. Not what proves the resurrection, but what does the resurrection prove? What does it do? Why is it important? What does it guarantee? Why is it valuable? Why is it, why are we here today? What does the resurrection prove? And then at the end of our time together, we'll answer the question, so what? You know, how does the resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, in a country the size of New Jersey, how does that one event shape our lives in 2023. So that's kind of where we are going this morning. But first, let's answer the question, what does the resurrection prove? So if you have your text, I would encourage you to stay in Isaiah 53. Um, but I'm just going to tell you, my, my style typically on a Sunday morning is to kind of park in one particular passage. But this morning, we're going to bounce around to a few different passages Isaiah 53 is going to be our, kind of our first main text. We'll also be looking at Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and your fingers are going to get a workout this morning. So today we're going to just start with Isaiah 53. What does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves, this is the question we're answering today, what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus' identity, it proves Jesus' identity. If you have the notes, that's the first blank. And by the way, if you're new here, there's a key on the back of the notes in case you miss an answer or whatever. Um, Isaiah 53 proves Jesus' identity as the seed. We see that Jesus is the seed, he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. Now, what in the world do I mean by that Jesus is the seed, S-E-E-D? You know, that's a little strange. You know, we're used to hearing the word Christ, the word Christ meaning Messiah. We're used to hear Jesus being called the Son of God, but we're not really used to Jesus being the seed. If you have your text, keep one finger in Isaiah 53, but go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. So if you've been in church for any length of time, and if you've heard me preach before, you probably know where I'm going with that Jesus' identity as the seed. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the thesis statement of the Bible. Now, what is a thesis statement? Your English teacher would talk about what that is, and I don't have a fancy definition. I didn't even jot one down, but it's a statement that kind of summarizes the whole, right? It kind of gives an idea of what is to come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the thesis statement of the entire Bible, that in this one verse we have the totality of the message of the Bible. And if you know what's going on, Genesis 1 and 2 are the creation accounts. Genesis 3, it really records the fall of man. You have Adam and Eve, and they choose to what? They choose to eat the apple. It's just the fruit. Well, for whatever reason, we think of it as the apple. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. Maybe it was an orange that day. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose to rebel against God. They are, they are created in perfection to know God. And then they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then their eyes are awakened. They realize what they have done. And then God enters into the Garden of Eden and says, What have you done? And then where we are in Genesis chapter 3 is that God is then pronouncing judgment in the order of the offense. He is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, then on Eve, and then on Adam. But what I want you to see is the eternal conflict that is foreshadowed in Genesis 3 verse 15. I'll begin in verse 14. This is the judgment pronounced to the serpent. Because you... Have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, notice this part in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What do we see here? We see a foreshadowing, the thesis statement. We see the beginning of an epic clash between what? Between good and evil, between the serpent and God, between Satan and Yahweh. I mean, we love a story of superheroes and supervillains, right? I mean, go to the movie theater. You know, it, it seems like every other day they're putting out a Marvel movie. Anybody else notice that? I mean, Star Wars is all about superheroes and supervillains. As a kid, I was obsessed with Batman and his nemesis named Joker, right? We're obsessed with the idea of good and evil, superhero and supervillain. And here we have the ultimate superhero, the seed of the woman and the supervillain of the serpent and his descendants. We see the clash between light and darkness. Perhaps uh, why we are obsessed with good and evil is because subconsciously or very consciously we realize that there is a battle being waged with a supernatural force that we cannot see. Genesis 3.15 summarizes the entire course of the Bible and what does it do? It pushes us to look for a hero. You know, we see the brokenness of man ushered into the Garden of Eden from then on. And what's interesting is that in the next chapter over, you have kind of the ultimate sin. You know, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Right? Right from the beginning of time, we see that happen. So we are still looking for this hero. The sin and brokenness and darkness is ushered into the Garden of Eden and, and prophesied 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and what must this hero do? What must the seed of the woman do? He must, in a sense, reverse the fall. He must do something about sin. He must do something about death. And he must do something about the brokenness that we see in the world. That the seed that is prophesied to come from the, from the woman, he must atone for sin. He must defeat death. And he must make all things new. Isaiah 53 has all three. That's why we're beginning with Isaiah 53. We see the seed of the woman we know to be Jesus Christ, and he, in a sense, undoes the fall. He pays for sin. He defeats death, and he has victory over all to make all things new. If you have Isaiah 53, this is where we're going to begin. The resurrection proves Jesus' deity as the seed is where we are this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 10. This is kind of where we pick up in our text. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. What is he talking about here? So the seed must atone for sin, must defeat death, and must make all things new. That's what we're talking about. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. What does the seed do? The seed here that is prophesied in Isaiah 53 that comes about 500 years later, that the seed of the woman, the suffering servant, must pay or atone for sin, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Wait, what What does it say about the father's view of the sacrifice of the son? The father was pleased to crush him. That the father was pleased to put Jesus Christ on the cross Why? Because the Father knew that that was the only way to reconcile me back to Him. It was the only way to restore what was broken in the beginning of time, to restore my relationship with Him. So the Father, in His love for mankind, sent forth His Son to die on a cross to pay for my sin in full. And the Father was pleased. That, to me, tells me that the Father loves us. Can I just say something really quick? Has that gotten old? That the Father loves us. But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were, what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father was pleased to send forth to crush His Son to atone for the sins of the world. But then, you know, where's the resurrection? Notice the end of verse 10. Notice first off, I want you to notice the change in verb tenses. But the Lord was pleased, past tense, to crush him, putting to death, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, and then notice the change. He will see his offering. Wait a second. How, did, how will he see his offering? Offspring, excuse me. How will he see his offspring? He, it's talking about the resurrection. So you have in the beginning of verse 10, it's talking about the death of Christ, and then here it's prophesying the resurrection. He will see his offering, offspring. I can't, for whatever reason, I can't say that this morning. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is talking about the resurrection. So Isaiah 53 does not just predict the death, but also the resurrection. But notice, the seed must do three things. Atone for death, atone for sin, defeat death, and he must have victory to make all things new. Then notice verse 11, it continues on. This is talking about the resurrection and a little bit of the victory over sin and death. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, be declared innocent, be made right, pay for our sin in full, as he will bear, bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. What is it talking about? It's talking about that Christ is exalted. He is victorious in the end. I will allot him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. We see here. Let me just catch everybody up. Everybody tracking with me this morning? I know I'm kind of going a little TMI. For whatever reason, if you're new, we have a special Sunday. Byron just goes like, uber tmi okay that's just my style i don't know why most preachers just tell a bunch of stories i just go tmi okay but here we have isaiah 53 he he is prophesied that this suffering servant will fulfill exactly what was prophesied in the garden of eden we see jesus's death we see his resurrection we see jesus's victory over sin and all of those are reversing the fall the seed of the woman to conquer the enemy must die pay for sin, must rise again, and will reign in final victory. What does the resurrection prove? It proves that he is the seed. Okay. But think about it. I think most of us here this morning think, you know, this. I know we don't really think this, but we kind of think it anyways, that we think that the story of Christ began at Easter, or excuse me, began at Christmas, that we think that the story of Christ began at a little town called Bethlehem. But what I find amazing is that the story of our redemption, that, that God's redemptive plan for our souls began in the very beginning of time, that the Father has been pursuing us, trying to restore a relationship with him from the very beginning of time. I want you to think about something real quick. When is a time that you received a gift from someone that you knew they spent a lot of time thinking over? Have you ever had a gift like that? You know, sometimes we receive a gift, like a gift card, okay? <laughs> you know, most people didn't think, put too much time and effort into that. But every once in a while, our loved one, our spouse, our kids will give us a, a gift, and you could tell they thought a lot about it. What does that make you do? It makes you appreciate the gift, big or small, When I look at this story, it makes me appreciate what we have. At the beginning of time, God has pursued restoring us to himself. So we see Jesus become Jesus' identity as the Messiah, and then we also see him as the Messiah. Notice in Acts chapter 2, as the seed and as the Messiah. If you have your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 32. This is where... The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven. And then the disciples are waiting for the Spirit of God to come upon them. And then the Spirit of God comes upon them. And Peter steps out in Acts chapter 2. And beginning in verse 32, Peter says this. This Jesus God raised up again. To which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who had ascended into heaven, but he himself says, notice this part, all cast, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Verse 36. The resurrection proves Jesus is the seed, and here he proves to be the Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord. If you have that circle, it word Lord means master or king or ruler. He's both Lord and Christ, that he is the Christ or Messiah. He is the anointed one prophesied in the Old Testament come to restore us to himself This Jesus whom you have crucified. So here, Peter equates Jesus to be the Christ. We see he's the seed. He's the Christ. And then we see that he is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. You don't have to turn here if you don't want. Beginning in verse 3 of Romans 1. Concerning his Son who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection proves Jesus' identity, that he is the seed, that he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. Why is it important for Jesus to be the Son of God? You know, we think of the Son of God, that title, as Jesus is slightly inferior to the Father. But that is not the case at all. That the Son of God, this title tells me that Jesus is fully divine. And why is it important that Jesus is the Son of God? Not only did he plan the gift of salvation, but he had the power to fulfill it in full. Let me pause and take a time out real quick. What does the identity of Christ as those three things show me? That Jesus is the solution to the brokenness that was entered into the garden and the brokenness of our world. Jesus is the purchaser of our soul revealed in Isaiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the one to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies and to guarantee the promises of God. He's the one sent by the Father to justify the many. His resurrection shows that he is Lord over all, and the resurrection shows that he has defeated God's enemy. But what does it mean to me? You know, Easter, we kind of make it about ourselves. It's really not about ourselves, but I'm just going to take a moment and kind of talk about what does it mean personally. What You know, when Byron was, you know, putting this sermon together talking about the doctrine of the resurrection i just couldn't took a time out and i said okay what does it show me that throughout the history of the world that jesus was there every step that it shows me that the father's love for me to send his son and it shows me also that jesus's sacrifice was sufficient i mean let me ask you the question do you ever feel inadequate You don't have to raise your hand to that. Do you ever feel inadequate, personally speaking, but do you also ever feel inadequate before the Lord? You are inadequate. That is the message of the gospel. That's why we need Jesus. But he is adequate. That he has purchased my soul in full. And because of what he did, I now what can stand before the Father, redeemed and justified of my sin. Part one, it it proves Jesus' identity. Part number two is this. The resurrection proves our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Now, where does this come from? If you have your text, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Your fingers are getting a workout this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
it's kind of like the, the, uh, I don't know, the PhD dissertation of the resurrection. I mean, Paul takes 1 Corinthians 15 and just talks about almost every single angle of the resurrection. You see verses 1 through 11, the proof of the resurrection. You have 500 eyewitnesses. You have the lives of the disciples. You have Paul's own witness. And then you have kind of in the latter half, what does it mean for us today? And Paul, who is Paul talking to in 1 Corinthians 15? He's talking to a morally and theologically weak church, and he reminds them of the resurrection. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But there's no resurrection from the dead. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is also in vain. Moreover, what is he saying? That if Jesus is still in the grave, then let's go home. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless And you are still in your sins. So the reverse is true as well. So since Christ has been raised, then we are no longer in our sins. Our sins are forgiven. Point number two is that our sins are forgiven in full. The resurrection proves that his payment was sufficient. Since Christ rose from the dead, our debt of sin was canceled out. Our sin was paid in full, and now we stand before the Father, justified, declared innocent of our guilt, that the sin that was on us was imputed to the Son, where once He was holy, blameless, beyond reproach, and because of His sacrifice, now we stand before the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 2.13 says this, that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, Having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and he's taken out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? The empty tomb proves it. But do you believe it? I think most of us here this morning believe it here. We understand it intellectually speaking, that the empty tomb proves to me once and for all that my sin is forgiven. But do you really? You don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many of you think about a mistake or a sin that you made 10 years ago? (laughs) Okay, Anybody else in the room relive the mistakes of their youth? The mistakes that they made 10 years ago? What does that tell you on an emotional level? That you struggle to really accept the forgiveness of God. What does it say in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Do you really believe deep down that God has forgiven your sin past present and future part number three is this the resurrection proves jesus's identity it proves our sin is forgiven and it proves that there is life after death 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away, so you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus. What is Paul talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? That there is life after death. And since the tomb is empty and he has been raised to life and he is now living beyond the grave, then so will we. If he is alive, then we know we will be alive. But let me just, let me change verbiage. Since he is alive, then I will be alive. Since he rose from the grave, my sins are forgiven. Since he rose from the grave, I know who he is. That he is the seed that has come and undone the fall. That he is the Messiah who fulfills all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And that he is the Son of God. That he is sovereign. That he is in control. And that he is orchestrating my redemption since the very beginning of time. And know that my sins are forgiven. And I know that there is life after death. Can all God's people say amen? There is life after death. Let's just all be real. How many of us, just, just, just a little bit, fear death? Just, just, just a little, I mean, come on, just a little bit. What do we wonder? Is, even if you've been a Christian your whole life, every once in a while there will be a doubt that comes into your mind and say, is there really? But the tomb is empty, friends. There is life after death. We see that in the person of Jesus Christ. And his resurrection shows me that I will have life and eternity with him if I believe in Jesus Christ. But the question is this. You know, for whatever reason, on, like I said before, on Sunday mornings where it's a little bit different, I kind of go the TMI route instead of the story route. I don't know why that is. That's just the way I'm wired. I was raised by an engineer. Anybody else in the room an engineer raised by one? I, I just kind of go the, the super intellectual Byron. I don't know why that is. But, but really, let's, let's just answer the question, so what? I mean, how does something that happened halfway around the world 2,000 years ago in a country the size of New Jersey, how does an empty rock change my life? Paul gives the exact application of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And that verse says this. Therefore, it's the very last verse in chapter 15. So Paul, in a sense, is summarizing all of the 57 verses to this point. Therefore, because of all of the things I've shared with you, the evidence of the resurrection, what it does in your life, what is the application, my beloved brother? Who is he talking to? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ. And here is the application of the resurrection. Be steadfast. The be, be in the original language is the command. The word steadfast means to sit. In other words, what? If you're sitting down, you ain't going anywhere. All right? It's like my daughter who's sitting. If I need to move her, I just move her like this. She's going nowhere. What is Paul saying? Because of the resurrection, be steadfast. Sit. Be committed. How are we steadfast in the faith? We become immovable. 
we abound in the work of the Lord and knowing that our toil is not in vain. What does it mean to be steadfast? Immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord and confident our toil is not in vain. Immovable. Not wavering in our faith that because Jesus has risen from the dead, we should be confident that what we believe is the truth. That we should remain steadfast. And if you are on shaky legs, if you are on unfirm ground in your faith, then the Lord says in James chapter 1, if you lack, that you should ask of him. That we should be steadfast, immovable. Number two, we should abound in the work of the Lord. How many of you have ever uh, served in a church before and ever gotten burned out before? Anybody tracking with me on that one? Anybody ever served in a church and wondered if anybody cared or wondered if God even noticed? I think we all have. What is he saying? Because of the resurrection, be steadfast. Sit in your faith. Commit immovable, not quitting in the work of the Lord. Because of what he has done, let us continue to serve the Lord. And then number three, knowing, being confident that our toil is not in vain. Our confident that our toil is not in vain. Our work are serving the Lord that he will notice. The, resur- the resurrection gives us the application of steadfastness. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the empty tomb tells you this morning that you know and believe and that you have the truth. And that Jesus' identity is that he is the seed, he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. It proves that your sins are forgiven and it proves even if you question it, even if the world questions life after death, it proves that there is. So remain confident. Be steadfast. Do not be afraid. If you are a Christian, remain. But this morning, you know, I know this morning, for the vast majority of our time, we have spoken to Christians and what the resurrection does in our life. But before I close, if you aren't a Christian, if you're unsure of where you are with Christ, if you think you have a relationship with Him, but you really have never grown, you've never been born again, you don't have waters springing up to eternal life, if you don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning, then Jesus Christ offers you the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Him alone. That Jesus Christ has died and He rose again to prove that your sin is paid for, and He offers you the gift that was well thought out in advance, the gift of eternal life that you only open by faith in Him. What does it say in Romans chapter 10? That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that you shall be saved. If you have never trusted in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, if you don't have a relationship with Him, then He encourages you to come to Him and believe in Him as Lord and Savior of your life. If you have questions about that, you're welcome to see me after the service today. And let us pray together and close our time. Father, we thank You for this morning. I thank You for uh, the resurrection. And that it proves... So many things, and so many things that we did not even have time to share this morning. Um, It proves the truthfulness of your word. It proves that you will return again. But Lord, I just pray that the the surety, the, the certainty of your resurrection would give us steadfastness. Because Lord, the world will cause us to doubt our faith. It will cause us to question what we know to be true. And Lord, I just pray that we would remain steadfast.
that we would believe in your son and that we would sit and that we would stay committed to you. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you, that do not have a relationship with you, Lord, that they would come before you and they would pray and they would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. And I thank you for today. I thank you for all of the ways that you've shown your grace and your love to us and how you continually show us forgiveness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.